The psalm reading this morning is from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is awesome, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God is the King over all the nations. God sits on the holy throne. The princes of all the peoples gather as a people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The word of God for the people of God. One and two set the story up for us. When we last left our characters, there had been a a famine in a far off land and they had to travel back to their roots, back home. Uh, Not all of them make it back, just Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the story goes on from there. Ruth finds herself in a field that just by happen chance belongs to a guy named Boaz, who by happen chance um, is in charge of their clan and is sort of the, the head honcho, strong figure, if you will. And chapter 3 picks up right where we left off. And I think it's a very interesting chapter. There's a lot that uh, goes on, um, and I promise not to tiptoe around um, what we heard as best I can. Uh, The scene is at the end of the barley harvest, and Ruth uh, makes her way down to the threshing floor where they are winnowing barley. And of course, you and I all know what threshing floors are and winnowing. We, we do it every day. And so this is not culturally distant to us in the slightest bit. Uh, and this is an entirely foreign scene to us. Um, so let's unpack a little bit about what is happening in verse 2. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to flip along. Uh, you know, we're going to be uh, hitting a couple key verses um, in Ruth chapter 3. So in verse 2, they come down to the uh, threshing floor. This would have been uh, a flat place where they would take the gathered grain, and they have this uh, fork, that's um, an agricultural implement or tool, and they would dig this into the grain, and they would throw it up in the air. And the air would catch what's thrown up and the the good bits the barley would fall down because it's heavier than the the sheaf or the the kind of chaff that is around the grain so as they as they throw it up the grain falls down and the chaff is taken away in the wind they would gather up the grain and they would mill it and use it in their food and that's what's happening this is a huge celebration it's a big time of festivities in the life of this village and town. The winnowing floor, though, is not really 
where women wanted to be seen. <laughs> um, Hosea chapter 9 verse 1 ties some very strong sexually explicit language around the activities uh, that would take place at the threshing floor. After uh, these men would go out and work very hard in the fields um, and they would come and celebrate and maybe have a little bit too much to drink, uh, women of, uh, shall we say, ill repute were often found uh, in these locations. Um, and Hosea talks about that. This is not a place where Ruth really should be seen. This is not a place where she should go, um, lest she be confused to be there for other reasons. And then verse 7 and 9 sort of hit us with some language that's really unfamiliar to us. There's a ton of innuendo and euphemism happening here. Uh, Ruth is, her plan is to go kind of uncover his feet, to, to lay at his feet. And the word in Hebrew there is ambiguous on what is happening as she lays at his feet. Uh, and for her to ask to be covered, it, it hearkens to another passage in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 16. And the language there is about God who will cover his bride. How God will make covenant with his bride. God will know his bride, Israel. It's, um, this is what mommy and daddy do <laughs> behind closed doors. Uh, it desperately turns sort of PG-13 all of a sudden. Uh, but it is ambiguous. It's not clear if uh, Boaz and Ruth are sleeping together um, or if she is literally just laying at his feet. It is unclear, but to read it, I think, faithfully, we would say Ruth knows what she's doing. She is seeking marriage from Boaz. That is the plan. And this is how it's going to happen. Ruth uh, uh, speaks up for herself in verse 9. She uh, is the first woman in the book of Ruth to identify herself by name. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. And notice no longer she doesn't say, I'm Ruth, the Moabite. Ruth is speaking up for herself. She, is, she and Naomi have launched this sort of um, desperate plan. It is bold. It is audacious. It is loud. Uh, and Ruth goes in whole hog on this plan. This is what we're going to do. So she lays down, she says, that I am your servant. And then she kind of puts Boaz's words back in his mouth. We will recall uh, last week we read chapter 2. And Boaz speaks a prayer over Ruth. It says, may the Lord um, cover you, spread out your wings, spread his wings over you. Now, the Hebrew word for wings and cloak is the exact same thing. And so what Ruth is saying in verse 9 is she's saying, may you spread your cloak over me. Basically, what she's saying is, you know that prayer that you prayed at the end of the barley season? It's time for your uh, thoughts and prayers to turn into action. 
for you to make good on that prayer. Spread your cloak over me and redeem me. And so that's what she's asking for, and we know because of Boaz's response. Now the whole entire chapter is sort of shrouded in secrecy and this revealing and covering. You can see the, the word play happening out in chapter 3. And it ends also in secrecy. Boaz says, why don't you wait till morning to depart? Because we don't really want people to think, you know, you shouldn't really be seen here. So uh, we'll, we'll sneak you out the back door, basically. And um, I, I have this question lingering in my mind. Why, why the secrecy? Why the secrecy? Well, if the plan is for Boaz to act as her kinsman redeemer, we're going to talk about that here in a second. If the plan is for Boaz to act as her kinsman redeemer, perhaps Boaz is concerned about any legal muddying of the water <laughs> that might happen if she is seen. Maybe they were in cahoots together. Maybe they schemed this all up to kind of shaft this other guy out of the deal. Um, and maybe Boaz is concerned about that. I don't think that's a very charitable read of the secrecy that's happening in chapter 3. Because we know that Boaz is a, is a strong man. He is a, a mighty man. He is a man of good fortune. He is a man of uh, good reputation uh, in his community. And so I think what's happening here is Boaz is acting the part he is fulfilling his character. He is being who he is, who he's called to be. He is protecting her honor. We need to remember in this time and day that all of the cultural currency uh, was around honor and shame. Today our cultural currency is more about the, the clothes you wear or the car you drive or what neighborhood you live in or, you know, the letters that come after your name or what office you have. Uh, but in that time and day, it was all about honor and shame. And I think Boaz is leaning into who God has called him to be as the kinsman redeemer. So you've heard me talk about this kinsman redeemer over and over again, and it, we need to sit with this for a while. And I think this is my, my takeaway for us today as we look at what does it mean for Boaz to be a kinsman redeemer or someone who can redeem kin. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, too, as we talk about marriage and this uh, book and what does that look like and what does it mean. But we get the first taste of it here in chapter 3. Boaz is the, the Hebrew word is goel. He's the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. And it's mentioned nine, nine times in the book of Ruth. And so it's a, it's a fairly important theme for us to sit with. And so for us to see what's happening, I think we need to sort of take a step back and ask ourselves, what were the responsibilities of a goel, of a kinsman redeemer? There are uh, three explicit uh, responsibilities listed in God's law, and there was one implicit one that we see again and again how they act. So the first one is they are to settle any blood vengeance. Um, we need to remember that there was not a legal court system 
<laughs> in the day. If someone was to accidentally uh, slay somebody else, we would call that manslaughter today. But back then in that time, uh, they would have a, a blood vengeance out for that person. And so the kinsman redeemer is to sort of step in and be the judge and arbitrate that case. That is one thing that they, uh, it's their right and privilege to do, and you might even say their responsibility to do. The second thing that they're supposed to do is to redeem a relative from servitude. We will remember that if the currency of the day is honor and shame, to enter into servitude would be to bring shame on your household name. And so the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, is to enter in and pull those people out of servitude so that they can then um, practice and honor their family. The third thing that they're called to do by God's law is to buy back a poor relative's land that had been sold. Remember that the promise to the Israelites, God's chosen people, is a place to call home. It's a, it's a land. That is the, the covenant that God makes with them. I'll give you a land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And so when they would sell off pieces of land because they got into tax trouble or they needed money to uh, retire or you name it, right? They, they got in trouble. They got in a bind. They had to sell a piece of their land the kinsman redeemer would come back and buy it back and reappropriate it back to their clan, to their tribe, to their family. And the last thing that the kinsman redeemer is supposed to do, it's implicit in all three of those already, is to protect the vulnerable in their greater family. They're to protect the vulnerable in their greater family. And I would argue their community. So what has been in the way of Boaz acting as kinsman redeemer right off the bat? Well, I think there's been a ton in the way of Boaz acting as kinsman redeemer. The first is Ruth is a foreigner, right? There's this whole entire question, is she really his kin? Is she really his kin? She's a foreigner. The second thing is this whole entire unspoken rule of socioeconomics. We still have this today in our society. You don't marry someone from the other side of the railroad tracks. You don't have a white-collar family date a blue-collar worker. It doesn't work that way. It ruffles the family feathers. All of a sudden, Thanksgiving is a little awkward when someone says, I don't even know what that dish is on the table or how to use that spoon. What do I do? There's this whole entire socioeconomic differential that exists in the story, and it's, um, it's right there in front of us. The third thing that's probably in the way is that Boaz probably has something to lose in this deal. We are told in chapter 3 that Boaz is probably a little older than Ruth. He says, blessed are you because you didn't go out and uh, go after a younger guy. Um, but we don't know if Boaz is married. We don't know if he has been married. We don't know if he has children. I'm going to assume that Boaz 
probably has other relatives who have stake in his property. And for Boaz to marry someone at his age would be to complicate matters legally. We need to remember that if you were to die, then everyone under you would gain inheritance. This is the problem that Naomi has, is she doesn't have anybody to provide for her, and she can't even pass any inheritance to Ruth because she's a woman in this patriarchal society. So I think Boaz has something to lose. There's a reason he doesn't rush to Ruth's rescue, and it's because it would probably complicate things. She's a foreigner, the socioeconomic things at play. He probably has something to lose. And then we are told explicitly in chapter 3 maybe why he hasn't rushed up and been the kinsman redeemer. And that's because there's somebody else in line. And Boaz knows this. He says, I will act as kinsman redeemer. Thank you for reminding me of my role, he says. But there is somebody else who is in line. And if they pass, I'll do it. You can hear his hesitancy, can't you? I think it's there. You can hear his hesitancy to do so. In chapter 3, Ruth is asking Boaz to make good on the prayer he prayed for her in chapter 2. And so I think today, Ruth chapter 3 has a lot to teach us. Sometimes we have to be reminded of who we are. And sometimes it takes the least in society to remind us of the role that God has for us. Sometimes it takes a pandemic for a church to remember what they're called to do. It's Ruth who kicks Boaz's butt into action, is it not? It's not Boaz saying, oh, I know what to do. It's Ruth saying, do it. And Boaz says, you're right. Okay. I see a large parallel here. We, the church, like Boaz, are called to be the kinsman redeemer to our communities. We're called to set people free from servitude, and we are called to protect the most vulnerable. And here we are at the end of our time in quarantine. And I think we have a a question to ask ourselves as the church. Are we going to lean into the identity that we have? Are we going to be who God has called us to be? Are we going to act as a kinsman redeemer for our community? And so my prayer is that we would have the courage to do so, that we, Chapelwood, would be like Boaz and not let our community go away empty-handed. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We sing about the power and the might of God, God's incredible ability to do all that God says God will do. So let us worship together in spirit and truth. God is able. He will never. Yes.
Great.